0: You're a female founder of a tech startup, yet you still feel like an outsider? In a world that is run by Silicon Valley, how do we, women entrepreneurs, create the businesses that change the future while overcoming the barriers of the tech industry? This show cuts through it all and is your guide in exploring tech confidently as you become the best founder you can be. I'm Maxine Kramer, founder and CEO of Menenia, where we want you to own technology and change the world. We fast track bold and impactful women into the world of startups by making tech as simple as everyday English. This means no more overwhelming jargon and instead having the tech literacy to funnel your big ambition into a resounding success. This is Cutting Through Tech. welcome to Cutting Through Tech. I'm Maxime and I am thrilled to introduce you to the first interview of our investor series on this show. As a quick recap, we are trying to get to the bottom of why only a abysmally low 2.3% venture capital uh, has been invested into female-founded businesses in 2020 and as part of this, I'm having this conversation with multiple investors out there who have uh, graciously agreed to come onto the show and discuss. In today's show, we are hearing from Henry Wiggin and Sofia Quieros, who are both at the firm Mustardseed Maze, who are an impact-led venture capital firm. Henry uh, has co-founded Mustardseed and is a board member on Maze. He was formerly a director and portfolio manager at BlackRock in London and has an extensive uh, background in both social entrepreneurship and finance. Sophia is part of the investment team at MSM and her knack is to identify the great businesses of the future and partnering with them to help them scale whilst also maximising the impact of their social and environmental outcomes. She also has a finance background as a financial services consultant at Deloitte. And so I am thrilled to hear both their perspectives on where venture capital is today, especially if you are looking to make an impact and also how this actually influences perhaps the numbers that they are seeing. Because if you keep listening, you will hear uh, that they share their numbers of the pipeline. You know, how many women come through and how many women they fund as part of their f- portfolio. And I will say it's definitely higher than, than average. And so we have a look at kind of why that is and what differentiates, if you will, the successful women in that portfolio. This has been uh, one of my favorite conversations to date I hope you enjoy it and welcome to the show, Henry and Sophia.
1: No, just thank you so much for having
2: us. A pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: I'm very excited for this conversation because uh, I love the mission that you both have at uh, Musterseed Maze, MSM, uh, which is a venture capitalist um, company investing in impact-led businesses, but I would love to hear from you both um, a little bit of your background. How have you come to this? Henry, I believe you are the co-founder, so you probably have (laughs) quite an idea of, um, you know, how this came to be. And a little bit about your backgrounds around why this is important to you, why you enjoy what you do. Henry, would you like to start?
2: So, uh, well, yeah, so Must Seed Maze, as you say, is it's an impact venture firm. And we invest in what we call lockstep ventures. So the idea is that we invest in businesses that solve a social or environmental problem but whereby the business is driven by the solving of that problem. So it's not like some nice add-on, like some CSR program. It's totally integral to what the business is doing. And, and I founded it with one of my best friends about six years ago. I mean, we started working probably even 10 years ago um, when we were doing sort of, you know, once, once a quarter or once a month at some stage, we were doing these events at universities where we just, we'd go on campus. This was like in 2013, when no one really cared about venture very much and and impact was definitely not a thing outside of philanthropy. And yeah, we, we just started hosting these events and people would turn up and it was kind of like our fight club thing in the evenings, you know, and, you know, more and more people would turn up and, and then, and eventually got to a point where it was clear we had to, we had to quit our jobs. It was just becoming so encumbering on, on, you know, our day, our day job. And I had worked, you know, previously at Goldman Sachs and at BlackRock. And I think probably like a lot of people in mainstream finance was, was sort of, Asking the question the whole time, like, you know, what is the point in all this? Like, what is my contribution? Um, and there's there's lots of good answers for that, but but it just those answers weren't quite weren't quite good enough um, for me personally. And it was like this haunting thing. And so when when I managed to join that up with one of my best friends and create something that we thought maybe could deliver, you know, make make capital work for society, that that was quite exciting. And so yeah, that's a little bit of a <laughs> background how it began.
0: Fantastic. And then Sophia, how did you join
1: MSM? So I joined MSM around one year and two months ago um, as part of the investment team. Uh, and before that, I was working as a consultant at Deloitte, where I, was, uh, I worked there for two and a half years. And before that, my academic background is in business administration um, and I did my master's in corporate finance. And that's when I met Henry uh, and the Master's Team at the time uh, in my first year of master's in an impact investing class. And it was a lot of chasing after that, like keeping in touch with Henry. And uh, finally, they were looking for someone to to, inc- to kind of join the, the investment team in Portugal. And that's, that's how I joined the team.
0: Um, actually, I, I love that. So I love that as part of your master's, impact investing was, was taught. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So it was a class teaching different mechanisms where venture capital
1: was one of them of how you can incorporate impact uh, in business. So um that like I chose that uh, that class uh, in my in my masters because I was super excited about more impact investing than VC at the time I wasn't thinking a lot of VC as a career path and that's how I kind of realized that like both of them can be combined together so that's um that's kind of how I I defined that that was what I wanted to do um at a certain point in my career um yeah and that's that's where I am now
0: Amazing um what I love as well is what you just said is that traditionally people would see impact investing and venture capitalists as separate. Um, obviously, you know you've combined that with MSM. But how? Why is that n- traditionally considered separate? I think they're like
1: probably not right now. I think that's changing a lot with a lot of VCs that are also not impact focused, investing even more in uh, in impact. But I think before probably there was a misconception that maybe impact businesses were not generating the same or more revenues that other businesses. So I think there was still some misconception about that, which, like you know, it's it's completely wrong. We actually think like our whole, like the core of our investment is, is that impact businesses by being impactful are actually generating more revenues.
0: As I mentioned, so I work with female founders who are often starting a business that has a huge element of tech the end goal of the business in itself isn't necessarily technology. It's just oftentimes now, uh, the most convenient way to distribute, um, the cause or the purpose or the, the value of the company. I think for an example, Olio is like one of them where it's about reducing food waste, but the way that they connect everyone to reduce that food waste is through an app. So, you know, the first thing people think in tech is okay you know, let's let's raise money, let's go to venture capitalists. But there are other, other methodologies. And some people also say, well, why don't you get a bank loan? Now, I've got a lot of thoughts about that. But I'm curious to hear what you both think about that in terms of, you know, what are the options available? And which do you think are preferable?
2: I, I guess on, well, debt versus equity, I mean, I, I, it's pretty clear to me. So, you know, just speaking as someone who, who founded a business, and my, my, my mom was an entrepreneur, and my brother's an entrepreneur and, you know, I, I think I was, just, you know, most people close to me have been entrepreneurs and, and debt, I think where things have gone really wrong have been when debt's been taken on too, too early because the, the nature of debt is that it's, it allows obviously the debt holders to have a claim on, you know, the the, 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 the the business if things don't go go right and you end up losing everything um, and you end up ruining your credit record as well afterwards. And you kind of, the debt sort of, it's such a risky end, of, you know, of, of the spectrum is, is I think, quite sort of dangerous. Whereas equity, I mean, it's not that you, you can't take equity seriously and that, you know, you, you someone gives you money and then you may lose that money, but that their claim on you is is that, like, it's kind of, well, I lost the money and that's it. They can't make any further claims on your assets or on your future or in any way. I mean, you can't probably go back to that investor for money, um, or, or maybe you can, frankly, even if you manage things really well, but with, with debt, it's just much harder. So, I think taking on debt at a very early stage is, is yeah, is, is 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 less appropriate, and that's that's why, of course, you have venture, where well, it's where you have venture, you know, money around. And I mean, the funny thing is, I think venture has professionalized quite a lot because what what that meant historically was that venture money c- could behave pretty badly because you know early stage investors just didn't have many choices. Debt didn't feel appropriate, or banks weren't willing to lend to them. Um, and so you, you know, you do sometimes hear some pretty, you know, not so pleasant stories about how, you know, how people have been tr- treated by venture money.
0: What stage, uh, would you say your portfolio is mainly comprised of? Is it early seed seed or is it series A and beyond?
1: So we invest in precedency. That's, that's our sweet spot. Um, and then we can follow on, um, until series A, but the sweet spot of the initial tickets is in precedency.
0: I love that because I think that's exactly where a lot of people struggle. And especially if there is a um, a social good element to, um, to their business model, like you say, there is this misbelief or, you know, this idea around that might hurt the bottom line in terms of revenue. So I've noticed that that is then quite hard for people to get that seed funding. So um, that, that sounds great. So how many people on average apply for funding you would say um, at your, uh, at your firm on a yearly basis, if that's something you can share?
1: I mean, it's difficult to apply for because we have different sources of, um, you know, pipeline. But I would say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say mm-hmm. that we see probably around like 100 ventures per month, I would say. So like yearly, I would say that we see probably mm-hmm. around or more than a thousand companies. Yeah. And these includes people applying to us, like our screening efforts inbound, both inbound and outbound. Um, so I would say it should range around a thousand mm-hmm. of which we are currently making a bit more than one investment per month. So I would say that the success fee, let's call it like that should range around like 1%. And
2: that, that's, that's, that's kind of the, that's, that's those ventures that fit with our mandate in some way or another. There's, there are all sorts of crazy things we get in our inboxes that aren't relevant. If you include that in the numbers, it's up in the thousands. Um, you know, I, I you know, I think feel have the same, and others on have the same. But you know, I get you know five five to ten ventures a day in my inbox mm-hmm. uh, between my inbox and LinkedIn and, and various other sources. And so, but there's there's a lot, obviously, that just isn't isn't relevant, and we wouldn't tag to to look at.
0: Right, but I think that's exactly the kind of measure you want to look at, right? So there are about a thousand a year that um, would fit the model, but then ultimately about one percent is successful which sounds like it matches roughly the industry standard, which is at 2% ish, according to Crunchbase. What's interesting as well is um, so last year there were between 20 and 30,000 deals that went through. So if you assume that is around 2%, that means there's over a million pitches, you know, 1.2 ish million pitches happening a year, like full on conversations for, for venture capitalists. So it's very, uh, it's a very competitive space, obviously. Um, so what goes into determining, uh, if this is a good fit for investment, what are you looking for then in that 1%?
1: Yeah. So I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think the first one is impact. So I think the first screening that we do is the alignment of impact with revenues. So it needs to be a business that it's, you know, generating enough revenues to be VC appropriate, but it also needs to have that lockstep model. So I think that's first, that's the number one. Mm -hmm. Um, number two I would say I would say team and how the team is impact driven as well so strong founders um, with a lot of like capacity to um, to actually do things so um, people that actually like move uh, move things forward but that are also very impact driven Uh, and then you start breaking down in terms of of course market opportunity how big is that market opportunity which is also related with is it the market like appropriate for VC investing or not um, and then you have all the others which go from competition towards business model, if it makes sense, if it doesn't make sense. But I would say that's like what we look after um, only after we, we kind of those two main factors are already, have already checked.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think Sophia said it right. I mean, we're, to be honest, at this very early stage, we're investing in people as much, as much as we're investing in businesses. I mean, these businesses have been, you know, for around one to three years. So the, 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 the assessment of the founders is critical. Um, and there's certain things that, you know, we, we look at, you know, look out for in the founders that, that, that really matter. And, you know, one of them is, is founders having, you know, a high degree of self-awareness. So they, they, they realize where their weaknesses are, which helps them then, you know, hire smartly and, and manage the team smartly, because there's only two things they've really got to get right. One is raise money and the other is just attract a good team. Um, if they can do those two things and you know, the venture can go a long way. Um, so yeah, the, the people component is massive. And, and then the vision, eh, the big problem, big social problem is, is also important for us.
0: I'd love to expand on that a little bit because I do think that there are types of models and types of industries that work particularly well. Um, because ultimately, if you um, look at kind of the Silicon Valley VC investing concept, it's the idea of more money makes more money. So if we invest this in you, you can go and get you know, even a larger market base and increase customer lifetime value so on and generate you know ultimately there should be a great return on investment um and there are certain times when that that is really apparent in a business and other times when it isn't even if it you know is early stage so how what details are important to you at that level what do you feel for example is not a good fit for venture capital
1: yes so i think The first, so I think there are two components to that one impact, one which is related to impact, and one that it's related to the market. So I think we are looking for a big um, impact opportunity. So it needs to be a problem that a lot of people are feeling. Um, And the second one is the size Mm -hmm. of the market, as I mentioned before. So it needs to be uh, a market that it's like a billion dollar market, um, a problem that a lot of people are feeling. Uh, and it needs to be a business model that it's scalable. So I think that's like, those are the main three things in terms of market overview that we look at.
0: And I would say that that is definitely the foundation. Um, I mean, you've obviously added the, the impact aspect to it. Um, but what I've also wondered then is, cause I see a lot of people, they, they have what they consider a great idea, but it isn't quite at that level of refinement that it's indeed, Scalable or targeting enough of a group that it would bring the appropriate return on investment to be suitable for VC. And what would you say to them then? Like, what what next for them? Like, what are their other options? So
1: you mentioned specifically, like in terms of the business model, and I think you know a lot of early stage businesses pivot. So that's something that founders can be advised on. There are a lot yeah. of companies that started B two C and then went mm-hmm. to B two B to C. So I think there is a lot of opportunities in terms of market that are serving a big market maybe they don't have the appropriate business model to tackle that market so i think there's a lot of education that can also go around that in, mm-hmm. in terms of like mentoring and speaking with founders more in this early stage in terms of advising them what it might be appropriate or not for the market that they are there in
2: yeah i'd also say that um, it's actually quite unusual that where we would encounter a venture as, as a venture firm um before they had tapped some other, more informal sources of capital. So you mentioned, you know, being an idea stage. It's it's very unusual when a venture will just, at an idea stage, just suddenly, you know, lock in a whole load of venture money and, and off they go. I mean, obviously if they're established and they've, and they've done other things in the past, and they'll, you know, then, then that does happen. And, you know, they immediately step into big valuations or higher valuations and they raise money. But for 90% of the ventures that we come across, at least I would say, they have raised you know taken money from their savings they've raised money from money from friends and family mm-hmm. they've, they've gone out to every contact like informal contact that they can find and they've got you know 5k here 10k there 20k whatever they mm-hmm. can and, and and so usually the first 100 to two hundred fifty thousand has has been raised somewhat informally yeah. and and you know that's so that, and that's a well-trodden path mm-hmm. you know for the first year or two that's what a lot of ventures will do and we'll, we'll We'll very rarely see the venture at the day of incorporation. We'll typically see them a couple of years after they've incorporated when they've built up some proof points and they've shown that they can raise money from informal networks and you know they're willing to put some of their own money or their own savings in if they have any. And also just where the opportunity costs of not having a, you know, a formal job mm-hmm. for two years where they're not probably earning much at all because that, that requires a lot of grit and commitment too.
0: Absolutely. And I think this is probably one of the biggest misconceptions out there as well is right. I've got an idea now I need to raise money. And there is such a big phase that happens between the two, um, as you just described. And I think not everyone is aware of what that entails. There are a lot of incubators and accelerators and so on. Um, but still, I've often come across, uh, cause I, I coach various people through various programs. And what I hear a lot is, you know, oh, okay. We're completing the program. I've got like, you know, something very basic, like some kind of minimum viable product out there. Now my job is to start raising funds. Right. And on the one hand it is because like you mentioned, there's many ways to raise funds, AKA friends, family, investment, angels, so on Um, investment. I mean your own, but there is still a lot around proof and, um, you know, getting it off the ground, getting that initial traction. How would you say um, founders can improve their skill around that?
2: It's an interesting question. It comes back to like the self-awareness question where yeah. some people are, are, are acutely conscientious about where they are, and so they, mm. they wouldn't approach capital before everything's sort of perfect, when it's probably too late. and you'll have some people who are completely outrageous, you know who they haven't done very much at all, and they'll, they'll talk to you like they've sort of built Facebook and you have to give them money. Um, and and that, that yeah that's really interesting. And to be honest, it's you need a bit of both. Um, you have to have you know an element of realism about where you are. But uh, I think really good founders are excellent salesmen or saleswomen, mm-hmm. um, and they and you know that comes with um, yeah sometimes you know, stretching the truth a bit. You know they they will they'll but but obviously you've got to do it within the realms of reality because it's got to be it's got to be believable. Uh, and, and so, you know, sometimes we find ourselves having very uncomfortable conversations with founders because we're just kind of getting, well, like, this, is, this is nonsense. But sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable. We're like, well, but actually, wow, they, they, that, this, this person is a really great salesperson. And if they can do this with us, they can probably raise a bunch of money from other people. And, and half a success in venture is just raising money. Um, of course, it has to be backed up with substance, but if you can't get the capital together, you you just aren't going to build, you know, these these businesses because the nature of these businesses in the early years is that they are not going concerns. They they're, they're all about the jam tomorrow, so they're, they're always having to be funded.
1: I agree with Henry. I think you see a lot of like founders that previous that were founders before, um, so senior founders raising way earlier than others. So I think there are a lot of implications here, like in terms of if the market is growing, probably you will raise without having a lot of revenues. We actually have a pretty good example Mm -hmm. of that in our portfolio. Um, So I think there's a lot of things like coming at play, um, like when the founders should be raising or not. But I I think this is something also you also learn while you're having Mm -hmm. conversations with funds and like hearing their feedback. Like this is too early for us. We are What are we looking for until Mm -hmm. like our next catch-up? Should it be traction? What should it be? So I think like the more conversations we have with funds, we also know what you like, where you are positioned how in how these funds are are looking to you.
2: Yeah. I, I think the truth is though I think if the founders are, are deeply unaware of where they are, then it does beg a question because the, the nature again of 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 creating something innovative is that there's an element of opportunism in it, right? You're filling a gap. And so th- these people should be by nature somewhat opportunistic. And and um, and that means that they should be able to recognize opportunities and and and, and so in the same vein, they should know when they need to kind of launch, when, they, when they're going to jump in and talk with venture. They should have a pretty good sense for that. They should to work it out, um, you know, and they'll triangulate from various conversations they're having. They'll get pushed back here, but there'll be someone receptive there. And they'll, and they'll kind of, you know, they'll, they'll weasel their way through, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get there. Um, I, th- I think it's an important trait of, of a founder is that they, they are opportunistic. By by
0: by nature, and yeah. And then slightly pivoting to, because um, there are a lot of questions here. A lot of things you said that I think really resonate, and I I want to dig a bit deeper, especially how it affects women or female founders. Um, but before we dive into that, do you know anything around statistics for for you? Um, how many women? kind of apply or you said apply is not the right word i'm not quite sure how to phrase it but you know have a conversation with you end up in your your kind of lead group if you will those thousand people a year do you know how many of them would identify as women
1: in terms of statistics we i think a bit more than 30 percent of our pipeline uh, have a female founder so i think it's 32 percent um like in the in those a thousand a year that we were talking about before um and in terms of our portfolio we have six ventures, which represents 30% of our portfolio, which have um, a female founder or co-founder.
0: Right, so that's amazing because that's well above the industry average, uh, which is last reported to be last year, 2.3% of all venture capital uh, goes to female-founded or majority female-founded teams.
2: Yeah, I, I saw that number. That was a TechCrunch number, I think. I, I, I remember a stat which was like 17% of female founders where it's seed. And, and then it was kind of 10% once you got to series A. And then I saw that number from last year and, and maybe it was COVID, maybe I don't know what it was, but, um, I didn't think it was COVID. Cause I guess that, well, I, I don't know, but that, that just stunned me actually.
0: I mean, that's the thing as well as how is the 2.8 measured. Um, but a few things I was thinking of as well is is this is percentage of capital. So could it be, for example, that female founder teams ask for less money or, or raise smaller rounds, because, you know, there's a big narrative around as well, um, paying quality, you know, inequality in terms of corporate jobs, uh, women earning less than men and, and that, and at the end of the day, this is also an, a money conversation. Do you think that plays a role in this industry, uh, industry statistic?
1: No, I was just going to point that in terms of the, you know, the decks that I receive and the pitch decks that I receive, I don't see a difference. So I don't see like female-led businesses asking for less um, Mm -hmm. funding um, than male businesses. I think what can be at play here is also that probably Mm -hmm. because um, female founders uh, receive less money, they also, the ones like, they don't get to Series A and to large rounds. So I think that that's uh, obviously at, at play here as well
0: i love that so it's the cumulative effect because if they're not getting it in in series you know if they're not getting it at c they're never going to make it to a they're never going to make it beyond um which i think is and that's the part that i think is is such a shame um i was talking about this the other day and i used a very um oversimplified generalized example right but imagine like say 50 years ago you know john starts the local auto repair shop jane starts the local bakery both celebrated wonderful businesses for local community. You know, the town loves them. And, you know, you can't imagine a high street, you know, without those types of shops. But then if you bring that back to today um, with kind of the more intangible businesses, especially if you're thinking tech, um, I don't know what the equivalent of the bakery is, but given that, you know, in this case, the female person doesn't have access to the funds to, to create those companies or those businesses and grow them and scale them, you're missing out on something really vital in the community. And I'm I'm wondering what that's going to look like 10 years from now. Um that said, you know, for you guys, it sounds like it's very consistent. If about a third of the applicants are are, you know, female founded and about a third of your portfolio, I mean that's that's beautiful that matches up beautifully in your funnel. Um, but where do you see that going in in the long term?
2: Well, the the two percent is is a problem, you know, because I I think that you know, sometimes when I think about like what, you know, we have discussions about, you know, you know, there are, you know, and I think you can there are certain stereotypes that are actually true. I mean, some stereotypes are not true, but um, there are some of which I think, and this, this may be contentious, but there's, there is, a, there are academic studies supported around sort of risk taking behavior and, and some of that behavior may be inherited, some may, may be biological, et cetera, et cetera. But, but there's, um, you know, I think a good organization requires a, and sort of a diversity of approach. You know, if you if you don't, if you just have a bunch of crazy risk takers, you know, you're going to drive the organization into the ground. Um, and and if you have a bunch of people who only are thinking about how everyone else, you know, about how you know about the well being of all their stakeholders, you may also not be able to drive the vision forward. Um, and I'm not, you know, and so I think that 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 two percent is a serious problem in that you will, will 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 just end up in a with in a probably a suboptimal, the outcome of a suboptimal set of decisions, you know, we'll just end up, then the tragedy probably will be be that we won't know what it would have looked like otherwise. We'll just be like, well, this is just how things are, but it probably could have been a lot better. And that there is a lot of academic work on, you know, why, um, you know, that, there, you know, that, you know, this complementarity of types of stereotypes and that, 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 that divide of stereotypes, which is often ascribed between, you know, men and women, um, you know, to the extent it exists or doesn't exist, but, e- but if it does exist, it's still, you know, th- there is a, there is a complementarity that should be, you know, ma- made use of, and, and obviously is not being made use of in this case, if that, if that's really, you know, how things are going to end up, you know, the 2%, that's just, that doesn't make sense.
1: There are a lot of female founders also like, pre- like building products for women which, so I feel that you also have like a huge gap there. If you like, if you start having, not having people, um, you know, producing uh, products for women, um, there's like a huge like economic opportunity that you're also losing there So I just, I just wanted to add that.
0: No, that's great. Cause I think that's one of the big questions and, you know, in that oversimplified example that I gave, right. You know, the businesses kind of in the, that case um, are helpful to anyone. But you see indeed a lot of female founders do focus as well, um, on businesses for women or that at least impact the bottom line for women quite significantly and, you know, time. And again, they say women, you know, buy more like in terms of buying decision and buying power, a lot of it lies with women in the Western world at least. And so it's a huge opportunity yet still, um, very often the feedback is that, um, predominantly male venture firms don't see the um, opportunity, the true opportunity of a particular venture necessarily when it's focused for um, a female audience. That said, I've heard anecdotally from female founders as well, that they've gone to kind of more modern VCs now that, that do have a mixed team or at least an all female team. Some of them, you know, focus or specialize in that. Yet they're finding similar responses um So I find that really interesting too, so you know it might just not be the bias of the team choosing to invest. It could be something else as well. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: <laughs> that's a, that's a great one uh, It reminds me of there' was a there's a joke in my old place I used to work which is around the um there's this boardroom at bP and you know have all of these heavyweight kind of directors and that they're, they're all talking about very serious subjects like you know where they're gonna drill their next deep wells and where they're going to spend the next few billions of capex, like big, big research topics, and then they get to the any other business at the end, and you know, and everyone's just kind of motioning through things. They don't really have too much to say, and at the end, they get to um, the important uh, issue of where they're going to put the company billiard table, and everyone has an opinion because everyone sort of has has sort of had some kind of experience in the billiard table, and 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 it, but it doesn't make anyone's opinion any more valid than the other. And I I think it's flawed actually to think that. You know, somehow women will know more about, um, uh, you know, for example, female consumer products. I mean, they, they will have an experience of using it, but it'd be a bit like, it's not, it's not like, um, you know, in, in the world of venture, you know, one, one would, you would have to presuppose that every time someone made a really successful venture investment, the person who made that investment knew a lot about that area, or they had an intimate experience with it. And if I think, for example, even, of, you know, there's some famous examples, like a JP at nor so when he invested in Spotify, right? He, he, hadn't, he knew nothing about the music business. and Every single one of his partners thought he was mad when he kept on betting, you know, making the same bet. Um, and so there's something about his framework or there's some other things that he was using, as reference points that allowed him to come up with the correct framework to make the correct decision in, in the face of a lot of adversity. Um, so this may be a slightly contentious point, but it's, it's um, I think we, you know, we love the, the idea that we can, we can with enough research and enough, you know, cross-checking, we can all form opinions on on various different topic areas. We don't have to have an intimate consumption experience of something to to be an expert on it.
0: See, I love that because I think that's something that um, maybe perhaps uh, people haven't thought about, right? They they naturally or instinctively think, oh, I will do better if I pitch to a board of women or majority women or something like that. And um, like you say, actually, You don't have to be an expert in that industry. And I think that's a huge point of relief for people perhaps to say, actually, don't, don't focus on that necessarily. If you can show kind of what you were talking about earlier, right? The traction, the team and reasons why this is such a great opportunity. Uh, and, you know, assume that the investors that you're talking to are able to analyze that opportunity accordingly and see if it's a fit for their portfolio, then that should get you hopefully quite far already, um, Yet it's still not happening, so is it then perhaps the business models or the the type of businesses you believe that that women are setting up or trying to pitch for so in terms of the
1: like the problems, I think there are a couple of things that play I think one goes to what you were mentioning before because I think the importance of having a female investor like on the table is just how the female founders feel when they get into the room, not as how the conversation goes after that, but just kind of, I I often like hear female founders saying, you know, once I saw that there was a female investor on the other side, I felt more like less stressed, more comfortable doing the pitch. So I think it's more about how female founders actually act during the meeting more than, you know, how the investor perceives the message and all of that. Um, so that, that's the feedback that I, I have been like listening when speaking to female founders about this. Um, I think that there's also like a, a top of the funnel problem. So I think like female founders lack the networks that probably male founders have. And what I was quite surprised because I was like speaking with some female founders and they meant, they mentioned that it is a personality trait of women that they learn more by doing so. Because they lack these networks, they lack the training and the mentoring that probably male founders have. So even if it's not a fit for your company, I think just you know speaking with founders and having that like training and mentoring will like help female founders to uh, to be better prepared. So I think those two are uh, like I think those two are, are issues.
2: I, I I would also add that I I wouldn't say you know are the thirty percent that we see in our funnel. I'd love to say that's because we're doing a great job of, you know, creating a broad funnel. I'd love to say that, but I think there's more at play than that. I think there's something about the nature of, of what we do impact venture that is attracting more female founders. And I think that that maybe tells us something around why that, you know, that number, that 2% is so low. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a thorny, it, it, I mean, it's difficult to unpick, but um, I, I have read, you know, you know, I, I, Angela Duckworth wrote, wrote this great book on, on called Grit, which is around, um, you know, how you can determine success and, you know, ex-ante determine success. And one of the, the best things to measure isn't an SAT score or, or a test, or, but it's actually if you can measure grit that you can kind of predict success. And, and, and in that, she, she makes some interesting observations around um, how, how women connect more with purpose, funny enough, than, than, than men do. Um, and it might be just a lot of venture just feels pretty meaningless to 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 or isn't isn't, isn't providing a sufficient incentive. You know, but there's the, there's the pure monetary incentive, of course, for a lot of people, which is sufficient. But I think an impact you get more than that. You have the monetary incentive, but you also have the sense that you are you're building something that really matters for the community, it matters for society, and and I think that maybe ties in with one of the stereotypes of of, of women that women are perhaps more likely to think about all the stakeholders in an organization than perhaps, you know, that, that, that male founder that is, is, is just going to relentlessly go after a vision at the expense of all those relationships um, and hence need for sort of a complementarity to the two. And so, so there may, I, I, there's something in that 30% that I don't, I don't think it'd be fair to say it just because we're doing a good job with the funnel. I think there's this, that, that's telling us something about, you know, incentives and, and the sort of thing that, you know, maybe to explain that divide somewhat.
0: That was also one of my questions. And and one of the things I've been trying to get information on and have failed so far is what the top of the funnel looks like globally. Because if 2% of people applying are women and or female founded businesses and 2% are getting it, then, you know, you would think that makes somewhat sense. And it is a top of the funnel issue. Mm. Um, I don't know, uh, is, is the answer right now, but I think there is something in that. And I think that's why I tend to ask the question around the type of business, because Um, there is something about uh, social impact that I've, I've seen come up very often when I talk to female founders, even if it's a component of an otherwise very, you know, great business model value, you know, revenue producing type of business model, which again, you guys talk a lot about that, that lockstep, which is great. Um, But you would think that a, a common trait amongst founders is visionary, right? Like being visionaries and and being purpose driven. And so it's interesting that that you mentioned that you believe venture doesn't ne- could potentially not hold a sense of purpose. Um, could you expand on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you know that there, there are we see countless uh, I mean that's why we're in impact. I mean there, there are countless uh, you know submissions that we get around building various kind of advertising widgets or, you know, someone's going to create the next sort of, I don't know, big brother application for how you can, you know, keep an eye on everyone in a city or, you know, that there are all sorts of things that are, you know, potentially very big and potentially very lucrative, but we just don't get at all excited about. Um, And and I can't help but think that, you know, my observation is that women are a bit more discerning uh, with that. You know, that I, I, you know, there's, we end, you know, we end up getting to play in a field of very capable women. Um, and it's not to say they're not, they're not outside, you know, the, the realm of impact. They, of course, are, there are some very capable and brilliant founders outside of, World of impact, but I just, I just feel like there's, we, we have no trouble finding great female founders. Um, we've never made any great effort to find them either. You know, they just, you know, we, we have in the last couple of years started to tag female founders because we think it's an interesting stat to, to keep an eye on. And obviously there's a lot of work going on in the space and we want to make sure that we're, you know, on top of our game and we, the funnel is being managed as it should be. But, you know, from day one, we've been backing female founders and, um, and, uh, and you know, we, we, we've always had between 30 to 40%, you know, share of, of, of female founders. And, and I think that's because of, you know, just we're playing in this, this deep pool of impact.
0: Sophia, what you said earlier about what you think contributes to those numbers, really filled me with excitement because I feel like those are things we can do something about right a the way that people feel when they enter the room um and I think if if um firms want to make a difference in this two percent which is a question in itself I don't know if every firm wants to um you know setting up the right environment will be a great beneficial factor and then also networks so how do people hear about uh, MSM, like, how do you know that people come into your funnel?
1: A lot of different different things. So I think one is
0: like putting our brand out there,
1: uh, so people know that we are an impact VC firm. Uh, investors, other VC funds that refer companies to us already have that in mind. So it's uh, the ventures that we get already screened towards impact. Um, so I think that's a big play, and also like our outbound efforts as well. So in terms of how we source for companies and um, mm-hmm. And how, like, where we look for uh, for founders is also, um, is also important. So we look a lot, like, and just in that, in those networks, uh, there are a lot of female founders. So, for example, we have a lot of networks with female angel investors that refer a lot of female founders. Because we have a certain percentage of portfolio companies that are female-led, they also refer other female founders to us. Um, there's, like, we are very engaged with, uh, you know, communities, demo days, um, that are focused on female founders. So I think the whole like network around us um, has has a lot of female founders. So I think that's how we have um, we have we have been finding them. Um, and the other thing I think I think it's accessibility. So um, you know, if, if a female founder or any founder at all goes to our website, our LinkedIn, like we have our emails there, so we are quite accessible. It's not like you need to be in a specific uh, you know, network to be able to have a, a meeting with an, one of us. So I think being, you know, accessible to uh, to everybody, to diverse founders is also important.
0: I love that because ultimately that means that, you know, that there are ways to, to start shifting that number um, because the networks are there. It's just a matter of, I think flexing the muscle of networking, which is a whole topic in and of itself, because there are different forms of networking. Some that suit certain people much better than others. And I think people have a very cringe idea of networking where you say what you do and you, you kind of try and sell, or you, you know, try and immediately get to a bottom line of, of whatever that might be, uh, which doesn't have to be the case. Um, but the, just the connections are there and, um, from the sounds of it, you know, you encourage people to to reach out and to like you said as well practice makes perfect a lot of people learn by doing specifically women um and by doing that going through the process going through the motion i think it's a great way of um testing you know kind of talking back to what we we're saying where are you on that journey you know get building that self-awareness of where you are where you might be what pivoting might even look like if if at the moment it isn't a good match and, and what that can look like so Again, I think that's hugely exciting. Um, and one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this because I've seen year after year so many reports on this figure being low, right? Whatever percent it is, it is not high. <laughs> and that's the end of the article. I'm like, but why? Like, there must be something that we can collectively do to at least move the needle slowly but surely.
2: I think those fear raises a really important important point, which is around the networks. So I think earlier we talked about the absence of networks and, and that there is a bit of a sort of a legacy effect. So, and you see this in the whole startup world generally. So for example, um, it's no coincidence that California continues to be the center of sort of, of, of startups because they, you know, in the eighties, nineties, you know, they had a few, a number of unicorns, which then spawned other unicorns as people who left those businesses that went on to build other businesses and people from like, likes of Google went on to build other businesses. And you had the people from, well, it began early with IBM and Xerox and then Google. And, and there's a whole legacy from that. And so, and they carry on working in California. And it took a long time for that to pollinate into Europe. And now you have a number of unicorns in Europe. And we, we see today, you'll see people, you know, going back to Spotify, you see people who worked early days at Spotify who are now building their own businesses. But in the same vein. There were no women or very few women in the world of venture 20 years ago. I mean just really I think um, not that I was in it, but I, I, I don't think that there were many at, at all and um, but you know every time we see another female founder building a unicorn, you spawn another network, I think of sort of you know female you know, accessible culture. Um, and, and so it'll take a while, you know. But it wouldn't surprise me. I and mean, there's so much work happening today on this. So I, you know, I think I think we're that's we're ready. Going to we should see that start to move. I hope. So yeah. I, but the, I think the networks are encouraging in that sense. And you know, seeing the likes of some of our female-led businesses grow, I, I find encouraging because I'm I'm sure we'll see other women build businesses on the back of that.
0: That sheds a lot of positivity into what could be conceived as a future of doom and gloom. Um, and like you say, there's a lot being, being done about this currently, and it's something I care a lot about as well. So, you know, my sub-focus is, is tech within that. Right. But it is also about connecting, uh, female founders in tech existing, you know, we, I, we do a monthly round table where we get, you know, a very small networking group, four or five women together to talk about that, to kind of grow that kind of network. And, um, I love the analogy that you draw with that's happened in the past. So I think if you keep doing it, it you know, the results will come. There's a the lead and the lag indicator in this case. So hopefully numbers should be shifting soon uh, into into a better trend. So on that note, right, you've, you've mentioned quite a few things that uh, founders can do that are very important, whether it's, you know, being more self-aware of where you are, building strong networks, uh, going into pitches with the right mindset. What are some of the things that, you have done we usually ask uh guests on the show kind of three skills without which you wouldn't be where you are today um and i'd love to hear from both of you because you've had such you know interesting careers you have such impact on the uh (laughs) the businesses of the future how did that come to be
1: um probably the first one i would point like listen and being like a people person, let's say like, like that. So listen a lot of like what people are saying and, you know, kind of engaging with other people. Um, I think second one, probably like I would say perseverance and going after like what I want. And third one, um, I think adaptability has helped me a lot. So being able to adapt to different environments, different people around me and kind of, you know, adjust um like my you know how i how i interact with people and with in general with uh, things according to different environments around me so maybe maybe
0: those three and definitely the second point right you mentioned you you were in touch with msm already a while ago and you were quite persistent and then when the the role was finally available it was all yours so that's fantastic yeah I
1: i think that that's probably the like the the main output of that. So yeah. <laughs> See, but that's the thing, yeah. right? It, it
0: these skills are critical.
2: Well, no, it's it's a rare combination, I would say, in Sophia's case of of um, persistence and, and humility because um so you you know you, you need to be able to you know, we, we act as principles in what we do. So we have to have opinions and we ha- we make investments and if we get them wrong, you know, we get into trouble. And um, so you need to have a view and you need to be you know, be okay with having a view. Um, but you also at times um, will need to be amenable within a group. And th- those things don't always come together. And I think in Sophia's case, I mean, she was incredibly persistent. And, she, and when I talk about humility, was that she just didn't mind not having an answer for a long period of time. And she didn't make anyone feel bad about it. But then, you know, and as soon as there was an opportunity, she was, you know, she was in and, 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 and had some very strong views. So it's a bit of both.
0: I think that speaks as well, Sophia, to what you said originally around people and and listening and being aware and adapting. So it's the whole story is actually a beautiful combination, like you say, of the three skills. So that's great. And Henry, what would you say for your career?
2: I'd I just say one thing. I mean in my case it's um I a lot of my career was actually uh was very painful. You know, when I was in banking, I I, I didn't enjoy it at all. I, I and and I don't think I had the self-awareness to realize that that just wasn't the right place for me for, for a long time, and 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 it meant that I was you know whilst I could I could do the job I was never playing to my strengths and so it was always a struggle, and and so I think ideally if you can get yourself into a position where you enjoy what you do and you can sustain your you know your basic needs, um, then you just have a lot more staying power and and you're just going to be naturally. You're gonna be playing to your strengths, hopefully. And and so in a in a world that is already incredibly competitive, you might you might stand out somewhat. And and so I, you know, I'm very blessed that I've you know managed to get to a point in what we do where, you know, having for lots of years really not being able to pay bills at all, now being able to do that, not, not that anyone's particularly well paid, but I can pay my bills, I can support my family, and I and I can do what I would probably do if if I could for free. You know, I, I just like doing what I do. Um, and so that means that it's, it's just never really a task for me to write an article or something or to look at another venture. Like I enjoy it. So um, I think that's, that's imp- I mean, I know that's hard to, to get to that point, but um, that does help you do, do better, I think, if, if you can get to that point.
0: It is kind of what you say. You might not get there straight away, but if you have a good sense of what works for you and what doesn't, over time, you can get there. And um, it resonates a lot with me because I recently went full-time on my own business, which is what I love doing and what I care about. But it, it took time to get to that point. And um, so if people feel a bit stuck or they feel like it's, if it, if it feels far away, you know, I think again, that persistence, but an adaptability will over time then get you to the point. If you know what works for you and what doesn't get you in that sweet spot, hopefully. So, Henry, Sophia, thank you so much for your time. If our listeners want to find out more about you both, uh, about MSM, where can they go?
2: Uh, (laughs) www.msm.vc
0: Thank you, Sophia. Thank you, Henry. It's been a real pleasure having both of them on the show. And I hope that was uh, eye-opening and inspirational to you because you know, I think a lot of, um, a lot of people listening to this show, I don't know if you yourself fall into that category, but, um, they are at that pre-seed stage. And I think it's really interesting to see kind of, when are you ready? When's the right time to raise capital? I've noticed this is actually a recurring theme in some of the conversations I've been having as you'll, you know, as you'll hear, um, throughout the rest of these series. And also, ultimately, how network you know, plays a, a real big factor. It's something Eleanor also mentioned in one of our previous episodes. Um, Capital and network are two of the biggest drivers for female founders succeeding. And so I wonder kind of what networks are you part of? How are you uh, spreading the word about what you're doing and making sure you are getting to know the right kind of people? Let us know. Uh, you can email in on Maxime at cutting and if you are interested in that um, I am also putting together a female founders in tech roundtable series and in at the moment it's kind of you know through invites so people are spreading the word which is pretty cool because the whole reason is to kind of get into the habit of using your network and spreading good fun things around uh, but if you are interested in joining you know drop me a message on that email And I'll be in touch with a a little application form for you. So with that said, tune in next week for the uh, next episode in our investor series, where we try to get to the bottom of why only 2.3% of venture capital is going to female-founded businesses still. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week and see you next time.